morning, everyone. Thank you, Pastor Caroline. It was beautiful, isn't it? The PowerPoint. Some of us didn't get a chance to read what has been written on the wall, but it's good to put it together and have a chance to look at it. Let me just say a word of prayer and I'll bring God's word to you. Thank you, Lord. Uh, we are more sinful than we could dare imagine, and yet we are more loved and accepted than we could ever dare hope. We thank you for Jesus. Thank you. Thank you, Lord. Be with us. Bless our time as we study your word. May your word uh, shape the way we think that will affect the way we live. Thank you, Lord. Amen. I only watch uh, football once a year, and that is on Grand Final. Um, I don't have a club, but I was praying and hoping that Collingwood would win just for Laura's sake. <laughs> but I've learned a lesson in that uh, match, and that is it doesn't matter how you start or how you begin, uh, it's actually how you finish. Yeah, you can kick five goals the first quarter. You can be leading three quarters. Uh, it doesn't really matter. At the end of the day, it's how you finish that really matters. And that is pretty much about life as well. Uh, it doesn't matter how we begin, but how we finish. Christian life is like that too. Uh, Christian life is incredibly difficult to finish well and strong. Because in the journey, there are lots of temptation, a lot of uh, distractions that along the journey we can get lost. We can get lost. And if there's a lesson in Nehemiah, it's like that too, Nehemiah. I just wish that Nehemiah ends at chapter 12 and then that's it. It was fantastic ending to it. The wall was built. The city was repopulated. The enemy was squashed. And, and everybody come together, make a vow to God. And happy, very good ending to it. And if you remember, Nehemiah chapter 12, finish off with this verse. It says, not, not exactly the actual, I think it's in uh, verse it says that when they were singing and praising the Lord, the sound of rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard far away in verse 43. And it was fantastic. And we wanted to end there. It was a good ending to, it, to this kind of story of Nehemiah leaving Persia, coming all the way to rebuild the wall in 52 days. But it was not to be. As we come to chapter 30, it has actually doesn't have a good ending to this story of Nehemiah. But of course, in the bigger picture, at the end, we will have a good ending. But in this particular segment, we don't have a good ending to it. Uh, I don't know whether he had flat tires before. Uh, I've been told that most flat tires don't occur as a result of a blowout. Uh, they go flat gradually because air leaks out over time slowly imperceptibly until one day you are grounded. In fact, maybe you don't even know. If you're not in the habit of checking your tires, you don't even know that it has gone flat until you find it hard to steer your steering wheel. Uh, and as we conclude the story of Nehemiah, we come face to face with the reality of what I call a flat tire syndrome. Because from chapter 12 to 13, there's something happened. After 
dedication of the temple, repopulated the city. We, did not, we don't know how long Nehemiah stayed on for, but he stayed on for some time, and then he left and went back to Persia. He was under secondment. He was a governor in Judah for 12 years. That was a long secondment, isn't it? Uh, but we don't know how long he stayed on for, and then he left. And we are told that he went back again, we don't know how long, and then he returned back to Jerusalem. Probably he heard some bad things that happened there and he needed to come back to sort it out. And this is what we're going to see in chapter 13 uh, of what happened. At the end of chapter 12, his job done, Nehemiah returned to Persia. And... When the work was completed, he returned to work for king of Persia, and now he returned back. And remember, in chapter 10, they make four vows to God. The people make four vows to God. This is what they make. They make four vows to God in chapter 10. As they come together, as they rebuild the temple, as they rededicate the temple, they make four vows to God. They say they are going to submit to God's word. And they also mentioned that they are going to separate themselves from the world. They are going to obey what God's word says. And then they also mentioned that they are, not, they are going to set aside a day. They are going to observe Sabbath day so that the day is given to the Lord. As in one of the Ten Commandments. And they also make a pledge, a vow to God that they are going to support God's word. They're going to bring, they're going to tie to the temple so that the temple can continue to function because the priests and all that will come into the temple to conduct the service. So the people confidently make a deal with God. They say we won't intermarry, we won't trade on the Sabbath, we will not neglect the temple. We're going to submit ourselves under the authority of God's word. And then Nehemiah returns briefly to Babylon. When he gets back, he finds that they have neglected the temple. They, have, they are trading on the Sabbath day. They have intermarried with the tribes around them. All the four vows that they make to God, all of them were broken when Nehemiah was not around. That just shows you that when things change based on external, because of some authority figure is there, uh, it really doesn't change. And Christianity is not like that, isn't it? Christianity is about encountering God, something happened in your lives that you are changed from within, not just someone is watching over you and therefore you are behaving well. William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, understood so well about the vulnerability of every so-called spiritual success story who apparently said to all his new officers, he said, I want you young men always to bear in mind that it is in the nature of a fire to go out. Which is why you have to keep it stirred and fed and the ashes removed. Natural. We don't do anything you go down south. That's a natural way of our human sinfulness. If nothing is done, you go down that way. And so today we're going to look at the four vows that they make to God and how they broke it. And towards the end, I just want to give you one verse, or rather three, three verses uh, from the scripture to tie it up, how we can stand on God's promise, how we can hopefully by God's grace and mercy with our part that we we played 
uh, we can finish the race strong and well. The first one I want to give to you, they broke the first vow, submission to God's word. From verses 1 to 9, you're beginning to see that when Nehemiah returned, he noticed that they did not submit themselves to God's word. And let me just read out some of the verses to you. Say, On that day, the book of Moses was read aloud in the hearing of the people, and there it was found written. Uh, this passage that was quoted here is written in Deuteronomy 23. They read the law out, and they found these verses. No Ammonite or Moabite should ever be admitted into the assembly of God because they had not met the Israelites with food and water but had hired Balaam to call a curse down on them. It's a direct quote from Deuteronomy 23. Our God, however, turned the curse into a blessing. When the people heard this law, they excluded from Israel all who were of foreign descent. Before this, Elisha, the priest, had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of our God. He was closely associated with Tobiah. And you know what he did? The high priest, you know what he did? Tobiah is arch enemy of uh, uh, Israel. Uh, as we can see, some Balad throughout the story of Nehemiah. He was closely associated with Tobiah. Not only that, he had provided him a large room formerly used to store the grain offerings and incense and temple articles and also the tithes of grain. So this room that was used to store all these offerings by the people so that the temple can continue to function, feeding the Levites and the priests and all that. But he has used this room to house Tobiah. New wine and olive oil prescribed for the Levites, musicians and gatekeepers as well as for the contributions for the priests. So this, all, this big room that was used for that purpose was kind of used it to house Tobiah. I mean, they put in a bed and, and put in a TV there and, and computer and, and so as to let Tobiah live in the temple. Not just only he's a friend, but actually invited him and, and locate this large room that is supposed to house supposed to store all the stuff that was meant for the, the priests and Levites to, to work but they use it all to house Tobiah but while all this was going on Nehemiah said I was not in Jerusalem for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes king of Babylon I had returned to the king some time later, I asked his permission and I came back to Jerusalem. Again, we don't know how long he was away. We were only told that he went away and he eventually came back. Maybe he finished up his work. Maybe he retired. Maybe he's already on pension. He decided where else to stay other than Jerusalem. He came back. Or he may have heard a report that these people have uh, gone back to their old ways and he just needs to be present to sort things out again. So he left and then he came back again. And then he learned about the evil thing Elisha had done in providing Tobiah a room in the courts of the house of God. I was greatly displeased. And what I did, you know what Nehemiah did? He threw all Tobiah's household goods out of the, the room. I gave orders to purify the rooms and then I put back into them the equipment of the house of God with the grain offerings and the incense. So here you go, the vow that they make to God, that they will submit themselves to God's word, was not a hereto one Nehemiah disappeared. The high priest Elisha had given Tobiah rooms in temple 
And as a result, the temple could not function properly. Temple desecrated. And Nehemiah threw Tobiah and his staff out of the temple, purified the rooms, and rededicated the room again once, one more time to God. So first vow, submit themselves to God's word, was broken. And we just need to be remember as time goes on, as our Christian life goes on, we are familiar with Christian jargon, we are familiar with prayer, we are familiar with the service, we are familiar with the book. You know, things can start to become routines. And that is where we have to remember we always want to obey God's word. Not obey your emotion, not obey your own intellect. Where there's intellect and your emotion conflict with God's word, I think God's word must take precedence over those things. We trust God's word. I trust God's words more than my own intellect, than my own emotion guidance. What God's word say stands at the end of the day. And that is how it keeps you in the race, keeps you fresh, keeps you ongoing in your Christian journey. So that's the first vow they broke, submission to God's word. And the second one, they broke the vow of support for God's work. 10 to 14, again, if you look at chapter 10, uh, I may not have it here. In chapter 10, uh, again, Sorry. Uh, they, they make a vow to God that they will support God's work, but actually they didn't. Over time, they begin to care for their own little family, their own this and that, and they neglected to support the term. Maybe that's why the, the, the room that was set aside to store all these things are empty. They not necessarily, they, they can't transfer to another place. Probably it's empty. And therefore, or oh, it's running low supply. And therefore, they are able to house Tobiah in that store room. But nevertheless, if you look 10 to 14, it tells us that the support for God's word begin to diminish. I also learned, look at what uh, uh, Nehemiah said, I also learned that the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given them. And that all the Levites and musicians responsible for the service had gone back to their own fields to work. Because no support. They have to support their own family. And as a result, they have to return back to farming and to, to work. So what did Nehemiah do? I rebuilt the officers and asked them, why is the house of God neglected? And then I called them together and stationed them at their posts. All Judah brought their tithes of grain, new wine, and olive oil into the storerooms once again. And then verse 14, uh, Nehemiah often, after do something, he'll say a word of prayer. He'll say, remember me for this, my God. And do not blot out what I have so faithfully done for the house of my God and its services. That he keep in place. He make the people take a vow that they will continue to support the temple work so that the priest, the Levite, the musician can continue to function. And, uh, and but they have neglected that. I have come to realize that uh, how we handle money uh, in some sense reveals the values in our lives. 
how we handle money is early part of the year you plan your budget you are actually writing a theological values about your own beliefs and so uh, it is necessary to remind us that how we handle money because money is so close you know when God says that uh, you can't worship God and money he's comparing apple and apple he's not comparing apple with orange because money is almost like God many many people would die for money and money is not our God money can function as a God because it gives you power it gives you freedom it gives you status so God when Jesus says you can't worship God and mammon he's comparing apple and apple because money has that power just like God and so we have to handle that part of it wisely we have to invest it wisely for God's kingdom we have to invest into eternity so that we won't use money just only for ourselves yes we have to plan for retirement yes we can go for holiday no one is disputing all these things but we just need to make sure that money is our servant and not our master the third uh, vow that they broke is Sabbath for God's people they again in Nehemiah chapter 10 you, you need to read back chapter 10 that they make those vows and chapter 13 uh, those, all the vows that they make uh, has been broken chapter 10 verse 31 uh, they specifically after they signed a covenant the Israelites promised not to do business with the Gentiles on the Sabbath day in verse, chapter 10 verse 31 it says when the neighboring people bring merchandise or grain to sell on the Sabbath day we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on any holy day but as we come down to verse 15 to 22 Nehemiah again says to us hey look you promised that what happened now what happened now in those days Nehemiah said, I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in grain and loading it on donkeys together with wine, grapes, figs and all other kinds of loads and, as, and they were bringing all this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. <coughs> they had broken their promise by secularizing the Sabbath. And verse 16 here tells us, therefore I warned them against selling food on that day. And verse 16, not only did the people from Tar who live in Jerusalem will bring in fish and all kinds of merchandise and selling them in Jerusalem on the Sabbath to the people of Judah. It tells us that there were men of Tyre who actually moved into Jerusalem and set up their own businesses. And the leaders allowed them to operate their shop seven days a week. And you know, Nehemiah don't sit back and let this promise be ignored either. He acted firmly with three actions. Firstly, he, he rebuked the Jews that we just read in verse 15, uh, who were working and selling. And then he rebuked the nobles of Judah, the leadership. And he said to them, what is this wicked thing you are doing, desecrating the Sabbath day? Didn't your ancestors do the same thing so that our God brought all this calamity on us on this city? So he rebuked the nobles for allowing business on the Sabbath day by reminding them that the violation of the Sabbath was one of the reasons for their captivity. 
because they don't, they just neglect this part of God's word and slowly things start to, you just begin to accommodate many other things when you accommodate one thing in a sense. And so he said, didn't your ancestors do that? You are where you are, you're in exile is precisely because your forefathers broke this covenant. They did not set aside a day, a day to really set aside a day Sabbath is in a sense trusting God. It's just not just your effort, you know. It's trusting God, I can rest. God is in charge. It's putting God first, in a sense. And here, not just only they rebuilt the, uh, the, the leaders and telling them what they did, and then now, he said, now you're stirring up more wrath against Israel by desecrating the Sabbath. Your forefathers did that, and therefore the punishment now, and now you are doing the same thing again. And the third thing he did was he took some action. He, this was radical. He ordered the city get shut on the Sabbath and he put some of his own guards on duty and he threatened those who wanted to sell their goods on this holy day and also ordered the Levites to set a good example and minister to the people. This is what he says. It's pretty, pretty scary what he did actually. Uh, you might be wondering how can a man of God did this kind of thing? Um, but you must see what is at stake. Look at what he did. When evening shadows fell on gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I ordered the doors to be shut and not opened until the Sabbath was over. I stationed some of my own men at the gate so that no load could be brought in on the Sabbath day. Once or twice, the merchants and sellers of all kinds of goods spent the night outside Jerusalem, but I warned them and I said to them, why do you spend the night by the wall? If you do this again, I will arrest you. From that time on, they no longer came on the Sabbath. And then again, again, he always end off something in prayer in verse 23. Then I commanded the Levites to purify themselves and go and guard the gates in order to keep the Sabbath day holy. Again, Sabbath, they broke it. They did not trust God. They think that it's only by working seven days, the money is the one that's going to govern their lives and not trust God to rest and set aside a day to, to believe, to emphasizing the centrality of worship, the importance of witness, the necessity of rest and the priority of love. Those are not important. It's all about doing something. And so here again, Nehemiah put them in place rebuilt the Jewish people, rebuilt the leaders, did something practical, shut down the gates, get his own people to guard it so that they will observe this again. Third thing that they have broken, the fourth one. I just mentioned there's something horrific that one Nehemiah did was actually not on the Sabbath, it's on the fourth one. And that is the separation from the world. They broke the fourth vow, they make a vow to God in chapter 10, He's in uh, verse 30, says, We promise not to give our daughters in marriage to the peoples around us or take their daughters for our sons. But it is precisely what they did. They broke this vow that they made to God once again. Look at verse 23. Moreover, in those days I saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashdod, Amnon, and Moab. I think because they broke their promise to submit to God's word, they did not live separately from the surrounding pagan 
nation. And as a result of that, half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod or the language of one of the other peoples and did not know how to speak the language of Judah. I rebuked them. Look at what Nehemiah is. It's pretty horrific. I rebuked them and called curses down on them. I beat some of the men. I pulled out their hair. Whew. Man, I'm, not, I'm glad I'm not Nehemiah. <laughs> he beat some of the men and he pulled out their hair. I made them take an oath in God's name and said, you are not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons, nor are they to take their daughters in marriage for your sons or for yourselves. And then again, he appealed to the, the, the previous generation. He said, Was it not because of marriages like this that Solomon, king of Israel, sinned? Among the many nations, there was no king like him. He was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. But even he was led into sin by foreign women. And of course, as we come down to 28, what to do? The leaders themselves set the example. One of the sons of Jehoiada, son of Elishib, the high priest, was son-in-law to Sanballat. So Elishib, the grand, his granddaughter, no, his, his grandson, married Sanballat's granddaughter, which, no, no, because they are arch enemy. And I drove them away from me. Again, separation from the world. I think sometimes it's not that we do not separate that is the issue. I think the issue is more of accommodating. How much do you accommodate? How much do we accommodate the world? That is something that we need to really serious about it. Do we, how, how far we do we go to accommodate? Where do we draw the line? Draw the line. I think when uh, thinking about Nehemiah, the way he responds to this situation about them not separating from the world, uh, I, I think it may seem rather inappropriate behavior for a man of God, maybe. It's, but when you sin against the backdrop of Israel history, his intense feelings make sense. This very sin was a primary reason they were taken into Babylon captivity in the first place. And Nehemiah knew that if they begin that process, slowly, slowly, other things will become diluted. And then slowly, slowly, the people of God will become like the world. There will be no difference. And he's trying, trying to tell them that if God did not tolerate it in Solomon's life, he certainly would not do so now. Please understand that their sin was not marrying people of other races, but people of other faiths. That's the difference, isn't it? Just like whenever we, I can say this, whenever I criticize uh, Islam, I often like to remind people that Islam is not a race. It is a belief system. It's not a race. So you can't say that we are racist when we say something, you know, about the religion, because it is a belief system is not a race. I do not know of how uh, 
certain Asian kind of religion have certain cultural protection that you can't say anything about them. I remember about a few years ago, during our mission uh, month, we had a seminar conducted by, by uh, Bernie Power. And at the end of it, we finished off with a session by visiting a local mosque on George Street. And uh, we went there. And then after that, we see how they pray. And the, uh, the imam refused to come out and greet us because uh, in the past, Bernie Power brought a group of people there. And that time was spring. He had hay fever. And so when he came out to meet this group of people, uh, he, the people asked him, how are you? He said, oh, I got hay fever. And this insensitive Pentecostal said, let me pray for you, brother, and lay, head on, lay hand on his head and start speaking in tongues. And that freaked him out. And so he refused to, he refused to come out and meet us. But all the, uh, the, the leadership of the mosque came and met us. They have a Q&A time with them. And so I asked them a question. I asked them a question. I said, uh, Jesus, the center of Christianity, has always been bashed, criticized as a gay, all kinds of things, swear words and all that. Uh, Christian doesn't do anything. We don't do anything about that. We just accept. You, you can criticize whatever you want to criticize. You can say whatever you want to say, or the media, or whatever. Uh, and then I say, a number of years ago in Afghanistan, the Taliban discovered a statue of Buddha, a huge one. I don't know what you remember. And what did they do to it? They put dynamite and blew it live telecast. I said, what did the Buddhist world do? Nothing. Nothing. I said, why is it? Why is it? that?" And at that time, they were making a movie of uh, Muhammad. Uh, a bit of, I think from an Egyptian guy, make a kind of story, and, and the whole Islamic world reacted and burned churches and, and all kinds of things. I say, why is it when something has been said about your prophet that you all need to react like this, when other faith don't react like this? I say, can you please provide me an answer? And you know what they said to me? At least I, I forced them to say it. They say, we shouldn't. We shouldn't have done that. I said, oh, okay. I said, at least you acknowledge that you shouldn't. You shouldn't have done that. And the, the separation is clear. And whatever you can say about the religion, but at least they are distinctly do not mix. When you go to a temple or you go to a mosque, they don't try to accommodate you. They don't. They just tell you what they believe. That's it. They somehow have a strong sense of what they believe. That I find that Christianity, sometimes we try to accommodate too much to the people. We try to appeal to the world so much that we begin to compromise and dilute and slowly, slowly evolve and slide down the drain. I just, I just received a text this morning, someone telling me that in the last couple... I don't know how, what is the statistic like, but 500 churches in London has closed down and 423 mosques have been built. 
and they're beginning to call London Londonistan Londonistan that is beyond any hope so I better go Europe before we become Islamic countries visit so separation is a very sensitive thing and I, I, can, I can understand why Nehemiah need to take such a drastic stage because the minute you cross is slowly you let other things in things don't happen overnight it happens slowly slowly and slowly sin don't happen overnight it happens slowly isn't it just a new Anderson in one of uh, described the process of succumbing to temptation this way he said frame number one I will take a drive but I won't go near the grocery store and then the next step is I will drive past the grocery store but I will not go in and then number three I will go in the grocery store but I will not go down the aisles where the candy is and number four I will look at the candy but not pick it up number five I will pick it up but not buy it number six I will buy it but not open it number seven I will open it but not smell it Number eight, I will smell it, but I, won't, I will not taste it. Number nine, I will taste it, but not eat it. And number ten, eat, 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 eat. <laughs> it's always a slow process. And I can understand that when you begin to compromise small things, uh, you'll be more willing to compromise on the big things. And that is why submitting to God's word is so essential, even against my own intellect sometimes or my own emotion, no matter how much I feel, I still trust God's word above my own and understanding that I'm a fallen creature. Every faculty in my life are affected, has fallen. My intellect, my emotion, every factor is, has been fallen. And therefore, I trust God's word more than anything else. And so those are the four vows that they make in chapter 10. But after we dedicate to the temple to the Lord, after they had a great party and celebration and all that, Nehemiah left for some time and then they lapsed back again to their old sins. So what can we do as believers here? That's why I always say to Pastor Bruce, I said, Pastor Bruce, you have done well. You retired as a pastor. Uh, isn't it wonderful? Yeah, beautiful. You're finishing the race well, I have three verses in Hebrews to give to you, and then I'm close. I'll close and I'll pray. Hebrews chapter 12, uh, towards the end, the author of Hebrews, which we do not know who, says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and a sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance, the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endures such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So that you will not grow weary and lose heart.
in order to finish the race well and strong, I think those three verses. In, incidentally, two years ago at our inauguration service, I preached from this text as well. It was not planned, actually. It just happened at the end of the, the, my sermon preparation. I just, I just thought about it. Hey, back to this verse. And, and in these three verses here, in order for us to finish well, you say, get rid of everything that hinders, whatever thing that hinders you, you have to get rid of it. Whatever thing that causes your relationship with God, you must find ways to manage that. Get rid of every sin with, that entangles you. Run with perseverance. Don't give up. Run with perseverance. Community is there to help us to run the race together. No one should be a lone ranger. Christians, we are all in this together. And then you also say, run the race, mark up for us, focus on Jesus. Focus on Jesus. You focus on pastors or you focus on people, you won't finish your race. You must focus on Jesus. Look to Him. I will let you down. I will disappoint you. Uh, but Jesus won't. Jesus won't. And one of the chief mark of spiritual maturity is not is to be able to ask God for purpose and perspective when we go through difficult times instead of asking for comfort and convenience and we just somehow have to orient our mind towards that and focus on Jesus and the lastly it says remember remember Jesus so you as you grow weary and discouraged and tired look to Jesus Consider him. Consider him. He persevered to the end. But he died on the cross. You know, it's so hard for him. Even in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was trying to ask, God, God, is there plan B? Is there plan B? Is there plan B? Is this plan B? Is this only the way that I can save humanity by going to the cross? Is there plan B? If it is possible, remove this cup from me. And God said, Well, there's no plan B. No plan B. And Jesus endured, endured, and persevered, and persevered, and died on the cross on our behalf. He said, well, when you go through difficulty, look to the cross. Look to the cross. Fix your eyes on Jesus so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Let me close with this. Time is up. In 1999, uh, on the 27th of July, there was a guy by the name of Mark Barton. He was, in uh, those days, uh, a 44-year-old chemist turned day trader. He went on a murderous spree that began with killing his 27-year-old wife. And then the next day, 28th of July, he killed his two children, uh, Matthew, 11, and Michelle, 8 years old. And the following day, 29th of July, he calmly walked into a stock brokerage firm pleasantly greeted those in the room and then with two handguns pointed in their direction and announced, I hope I'm not upsetting your trading day. With that, he opened fire, leaving nine dead and 12 injured. When the police trapped him in his car, a short while later, the sound of two shots added the postscript to his tragic life as he killed himself. But he left behind a letter written after he killed his family. 
he summed up his thoughts in a few short paragraphs addressed to whom it may concern. In it, he described the murders of his wife and children in cold hard terms as if he were describing the shattering of a piece of clay. He offered his reasons for killing them and his regret at what he felt made it necessary. He claimed that he loved them and that at least for his children, he had wanted to spare them from any further need to live in a greedy and evil world. But at the heart of the letter were these lines. He said, I have been dying since October. I wake up at night so afraid, so terrified that I couldn't be that afraid while awake. It has taken its toll. I have come to hate this life and this system of things. I have come to have no hope. I killed the children to exchange them for five minutes of pain for a lifetime of pain. And he ended the letter by saying, I don't plan to live much longer, just long enough to kill as many of the people that greedily, greedily sought my destruction. You should kill me if you can. And with that, he signed off. What a tragic story. But what is more disturbing that he said this. He said, I've been dying since October. It's not overnight. Many things you brew on it and you entertain on it and slowly it slides down, slide down and slide down. It's like that. And Christian journey is also like that. And so sometimes we have to be a little bit more rigid and a little bit more ruthless in some sense in our own. We have to be gentle on others, but we have to be ruthless on ourselves in many sense so that we can finish the race well and strong because there are too many too many distractions, too many temptations out there. We need to be a little bit more managed and, run, and finish the race well and strong with Jesus as our goal, with Jesus as our focus. May we, may, we, uh, may we stand on the ground. May we take what is necessary, needed to help us accountable and finish the race well and strong together. Father, we thank you for the reality of uh, your word. Well, we hope to have a, a beautiful, nice ending to the story of Nehemiah. But reality is we are strong. We are weak. No, we are strong. We are weak and we can go astray easily. Our fire can, can just fade off easily. And therefore, we need one another. Uh, we need the church more than we, the church needs us. We need one another. And the church is a community of people coming together, share our journey, support each other, and run the race together. Help us not to judge each other. Help us to love each other. Help us to uh, understand our struggles. And together, we run the race together. We look at the cross, look at Jesus as our author and perfecter of our faith. We fix our eyes on Jesus, always looking up to Him, not to man. Man will disappoint us, but we look to Jesus, focus our eyes on Him. No matter how difficult, we keep persevering. And when we do that, we will finish well. When we finish well, 
we will come before you and you will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for this community. Thank you uh, that we are here for each other. May you continue to build this church. Build this church, Lord. Make us strong, Lord. Join our hearts, Lord, through your Son. Make us one, Lord, in your body, in the kingdom of your Son. Thank you, Lord. We bless you in Jesus' name. Amen.